Hello, my friends. Today, Joel is talking to Ivana, the COO of Intelligent Medical Objects, and they discuss how IMO helps healthcare providers have clean and useful data, tips for working through self-doubt in your career, and why having a culture of radical candor helps to move their company forward. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. Yeah, we're super pumped to have you. I love learning about different industries and what's going on. And my brother and stepmom are both uh, physicians. So it is common around the holiday dinner tables to hang out and talk about the intersection of IT and health. And so I'm super pumped to, to hear it from you. But I was curious about like your background and, and like how you got to IMO. Yeah. Oh, man. So so my background in, in school was I was a computer science major, both undergrad, grad school, and, you know, had an early introduction to a lot of data early on. So actually, my first internship was at the Internet Archive. I don't know if you're familiar with oh, the yeah. Internet Archive. Yeah, the Wayback Machine. So, yeah, one of my first projects was to go through and parse logs for anything that wasn't, you know, kosher for the Wayback Machine. So I really had a lot of early exposure to tons of data and was really intrigued by it. And then from there, you know, went to a university environment where built out a business system. So an accounting and finance system and really learned the importance of one, you know, business and and money, which is an important skill to learn early on. But just the importance of transactional data and how to handle it, how to handle sensitivity. Uh, And that ended up becoming the business office system for all of the University of California schools. So also exposure to seeing how to scale um, in a big way. And that scale took me to Yahoo and then to a startup called Jetsetter, where I felt like I learned more in, in those three to four years than I did probably in all of my schooling, you know, just around being a Jill of all trades and playing a bunch of different roles in an organization. And, and scaling systems to meet the demand that e-commerce demands and being customer obsessed. And I knew after that, that one, I didn't want to work at a startup anymore because it was just as, as exciting as it was, it was, it was a little too much, but I knew I wanted to solve big problems. And I knew that I had the skills that were transferable. And, and I, I felt like healthcare was one of those things where we're better to, to play, you know, to, to make humanity better and to be able to foundationally change the way that we think about taking care of patients. And and that's how I ended up at IMO because we're very much foundational in healthcare and and I'm happy that I made that transition. And what type of products does IMO build? Yeah, so we're a healthcare data enablement company. And so really what that means is we build solutions that bring data quality and integrity to healthcare. So for example, our flagship product Uh, which is called IMO Core, is imagine you're a provider sitting with a patient at the point of care. So probably your family has interfaced with IMO many times and you're, you know, logging into an electronic health record, searching for a problem that that patient may have. That 
terminology, that vocabulary is our content in over 85% of the country's health systems. And that content then gets mapped to a number of code sets. So in healthcare, there's a lot of administrative and standardized code sets that are used for reimbursement with insurance companies and then reporting for things like population health right, and, and cohorting. And we do all of that mapping for our customers. And we also create solutions that can clean the data later on in the process as well if it wasn't IMOized up front and then help help them uh, create some of those cohorts later on. So we do a lot of sort of the foundational, I would call it language and definition of of healthcare. When you were when you were like in middle school, is this what you thought you would be doing with your life? <laughs> I don't think so. No, you know, it's funny. I, I've always been a big gamer. And so I knew that I was going to be in tech in one way or another. But yeah, don't think I would have envisioned being where I am today. No. So I I do have some experience like seeing, I actually got to see like my record inside the, the EMR or the EHR, whatever. And it looks like a different language. So <laughs> yeah. And imagine being a doctor where all you want to do is sit and provide the best form of care for your patient. I mean, it's it's what is one of the primary causes of provider burnout. And and you know, we're very close with all of the EHR vendors. You know, they're they're our partners, and I know they're trying very hard to solve this problem too. But you know, we've got a ways to go. So did you work for this company before? And then or is it did you work for a different IMO? Same IMO. I was an intern at the time. Yep. And so started getting a flavor of what was coming. But IMO was a startup for probably 20 plus years before we kind of embarked on this new private equity backed growth trajectory that we're on now. And so at that time, that flagship product I talked about was still kind of being thought through. It was a lot of consulting work and throwing, you know, spaghetti against the wall and seeing what stuck. And and we're a much different company today. Can you give me a better understanding for some context of like people listening? What's the size of IMO? Yeah, so we have a little over 300 employees now. And when I joined nine or so years ago, it was a little under 100. So we've grown pretty significantly, pretty quickly. And I mentioned 85% of the US healthcare market. So there's 500,000 providers that use us every day. And then we're also in 14 countries outside of the US too. So there's a lot of, you know, translational type of work that we do, not languages, but different ways of, of thinking through how things are said. And yeah, so it's, it's gotten, it's grown a lot. It's grown a lot. So you've been there nine years currently? Yep. Why do you stay? It's always exciting. It's always exciting. And, you know, I mentioned that I came here because I had a passion for solving big problems and healthcare was something that's always been top of mind for me. I feel like we're always embarking on a new big problem that we have the opportunity to solve. And I feel like, you know, with COVID-19 and everything, the community within healthcare IT has really banded together to solve some of these big problems. And I think now is the best time to be 
in this industry. And and like I said, I mean, I'm most foundational, so it's we're we're in a lot of these big conversations. What's the culture like there? Mm. The culture is very passionate, similar to how passionate I am about solving some of these big problems. It's it's similar here. There are people who have been here since the beginning that are still here. So that have been here for over 20 years. And so you have sort of this legacy passion plus this new blood that has come in who sees this as a big opportunity to solve problems. Uh, I would say the culture too, you know, I, I see your radical candor book behind you. You know, <laughs> we she's are awesome. Oh, it's amazing. Scott. Yeah. Oh, she's so good. She's so good. Um, but I would say, you know, we're trying to be a culture where people are more open and direct with each other. And, and I would say that's one of the big transitions that we've made as an organization through this, you know, from going from being a startup to a private equity backed growth company is talking more about being collaborative, being more team based versus having that hero culture that used to kind of exist before being more strategic process focused. And um, that's where, you know, that open and direct kind of communication comes in. But um, we're also very focused on diversity and equity inclusion. And, you know, yeah, I would just say we're just we're focused on goals. You know, we're focused on doing big things together. Nice. Yeah, I'm a big fan of like finding really great thoughts and amplifying them. That's one of the reasons why I have her book back there. I like I like ideas that can that can spread and I always like feedback. I was recently like this past week, um, I was asking for feedback from like people on the show, right? That come on that say, oh, I've listened to the podcast. And the feedback I got um, like two or three times this past week was to have more women on the show. Mm. And I was like, okay, cool. But to be honest with you, it's kind of hard because we have a, uh, a challenging time uh, booking guests sometimes. This is this is an interesting conversation to have, though, because yeah. it's for me, it's kind of hard to talk about this because I'm worried like I'm not going to say the right thing or it'll come out um, awkward. But I'm yeah. a big fan of having tough conversations. It's tough. I mean, in my role, you know, I've been intentional about bringing on diverse people on my leadership team, you know, and I said I wanted a female security leader. I I did, you know, I, I looked for that. But, you know, I, I think we need to be more intentional about those types of decisions. And, um, and yeah, make it make it become more of a norm. So we don't even have to have these conversations. Right? We're in this is our like society, societal puberty that we're going through. We're all getting connected to each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, a hundred years ago, we weren't connected the way we are now. So yeah. we're more connected than ever. We've got new ideas coming. We can't even keep up with the advancements in technology. And so I think everybody just should extend a little bit of grace to everybody else to like figure out how to get through this together. I agree. I agree. So tell me a little bit about your team. What does it look like? Yeah. So I oversee product development at IMO and my team is Obviously, I'm biased, but one of the strongest teams that <laughs> I've ever seen. I mean, so I, I again was really intentional about how how I hired each of the roles based on where we were in the maturity of the organization. So, for example, one of the first roles I hired was a head of engineering, and I knew at the time we were going from being sort of a serial entrepreneurial startup to something that needed more rigor. So. 
I looked for someone who had that process focus that came from a big tech organization and so brought on someone from GE Healthcare who had been there for a number of years and killed it. I mean, he came in and really turned things around. And and what I what I really like about him too is not only did he add that rigor, but he empowers his teams in ways that, you know, we're all learning from. You know, we learn that you set high level expectations and then let your teams kind of go off and do their thing. And then um, I have, I mentioned this head of security. So, you know, I wanted someone who could come in obviously with a very strong security foundation, but was someone who could also be sort of the face of IMO as it relates to information security and could really be a thought leader in this area. And she's she's very much proven that she can do that. On the content side, so I mentioned where a terminology we have terminology as a core part of our product. I, I liken it to almost a manufacturing type of a world where it's sort of like you know, a clinician thinks of a new term that needs to get created and it has all these steps that need to happen before it gets released and then put into the technology that we serve up. And so I wanted to look for someone who came from a manufacturing background and maybe had some Six Sigma process improvement, you know, waste elimination, risk reduction, all of those things and and brought on someone with that background. And um, And then the last, you know, I, well, two, my enterprise architect, who is my innovator. So he's, he very much, you know, appreciates the process, but is also thinking ahead and how we can continue to innovate. And then my portfolio management leader, who is someone who I didn't want to have the healthcare bias because I knew there were some antiquated, you know, processes in healthcare. And um, she comes from PayPal, and so bringing in a, you know, more modern approach to agile portfolio management and thinking about how we can evolve that way. So. That's my team. I think they're kick-ass. They work really well together. And, you know, for me, it's all about setting those high-level expectations and empowering them to do what they got to do. And, you know, I'm I'm very hands-off from that perspective because it just works so well. I like the way you describe your team. I've never gotten that response that way before. Oh. Wow. Yeah. You kind of like archetype them and describe what they do. And I, yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the personalities too, they all gel, you know, there's, there's some introverts, some extroverts, some, you know, that are, that are more passionate, some that are more reserved. And I think it's a good mix of, of different, different types of people. It's a good team. Yeah. It's one of our jobs as leaders, right. To make sure we have the right people doing the right job and working with each other. Yeah, absolutely. Who are some of your favorite leaders? Hmm. So, you know, I would say, I guess I'm a little all over the place with this answer, but our current CEO, and I'm not just saying that because she's, she's my current boss, but she, she really came in knowing exactly what she wanted in an organization. So she very much came from, from this background, had this formula down for how to grow a business and make it successful. And and she really transformed our culture in almost a seamless way. And again, you know, kind of modeling that empower, set the high level objectives and empower. And it's it's worked really well. So she's one. You know, it's interesting. Then I go to like an Elon Musk, you know, where it's the the innovator, right? The 
the brains and the really excited, passionate leader type that I, I tend to follow, you know, outside of, of our company, Satya Nadella obviously comes to mind. I mean, those types where, you know, they're just thinking outside the box and moving the needle. And I feel like as technologists, especially in healthcare, there's so much needle moving that needs to happen fairly quickly. Are you guys able to use any sort of like machine learning type of futuristic AI technologies over there? Do you get to geek out over there? We do. We do. Yeah. So our, I mentioned the, the manufacturing, you know, kind of assembly line that is the content team and I'm not giving them enough credit because they're, they do incredible work, really incredible. I mean, they're some of the best informaticists and MDs in the country that do this, but there's a lot of manual work that they have to do, you know, where they're, some of them have these massive books where they're paging through to try to find definitions of, of terms and figure out how to map them appropriately. And so we've, you know, we've logged a lot of decision-making data over time. And so we've been able to leverage machine learning to automate, you know, internally, a lot of those processes while continuing to preserve the curation mindset and making sure that they're very much still, you know, fundamental in that process. And then, you know, on the on the customer facing side, we have developed a product that allows healthcare companies to clean their data afterwards, after the data is captured in a data warehouse or a big um, health information exchange. And that's where a ton of machine learning comes in, right? So you're you're matching to the best term. And there's a ton of opera. It's like a search, you know, it's where you're continuing to enhance your search algorithms. And it's learning as it's growing. Right. That's right. awesome. Yeah. Are you guys building any like futuristic stuff? You got any secret projects going on for like the future of technology? Or are you focused right now on these like core lines of business? You know, I wouldn't say that it's super, you know, sexy and exciting, but you know, healthcare data quality is a big problem. I mean, it's preventing us from doing so many things like being able to assess populations at scale and understanding what's going on. You know, I almost liken it to a product manager who's trying to assess a feature that, you know, how well it's doing in the market. And all the data that they have is that someone accessed that feature. Like they have a timestamp and that's all they have, right? In healthcare, it's kind of the same story. It's like, okay, here's a diabetes population. We have no idea what else we can get out of this population. And so that fidelity and that granularity is, is where we're really focused. And that's a big, big job to try to fix that problem. But that's really our mission is to fix that foundational problem. Yeah. One conversation that comes up a lot around our dinner table uh, with my my brother and my stepmom is like, when is it going to be that I just have all my healthcare data right here? Yeah. And I get to give it to people as I see fit. And it's like my data and I own it. Yeah. Yeah. So the, we call it the democratization of patient data, you know, the ability to give that ownership to patients. And you're already starting to see it a little bit with COVID-19 where, you know, patients, first of all, there's a lot more telehealth happening. And so the ability to have access to 
your records digitally is becoming the norm, whether it's through patient portals or, you know, through a record that you're getting emailed to you. But patients are really wanting to learn and advocate for themselves and partner more closely with their providers on their care plans. And and honestly, I would say that's sort of the North Star for me is how can we get our doctors, our nurses, our nurse practitioners to go back to doing that? You know, it's like they're so enthralled, you know, behind a machine. That's the problem that we're all trying to fix. Yeah. I was, um, I got to talk to Sir Tim Berners-Lee, creator of the World Wide Web. And oh, no way. Yeah. Oh, it was so cool. And he's building like this new layer of the internet, if you will, um, these pods of like data storage that where you will like own the data, but it'll also be re like connected to it's a source. So like if I have a bank application, right, like right now I have to log into my, you know, banking company's brand technology. But what if I had this pod and it was like a, basically a mirror of all of the data that's in there, but it's like in its raw format. So I could build an app on top of it, or I say do something with it. So you'd have like a pod for your banking data. You would have a pod for maybe two or three pods for your health data. And then you can have this abstraction to build third-party app developers can come in and build on these new abstractions on top of it to give you experiences like never before. Because right now my dentist data is not connected to my primary care physician's uh, oh, no. data, who's not connected to my other doctor's data, who's not connected to this one. And this blood bank's different than that one. And, and like, so on this lab company has different data sets on me than, and they're all disparate and decentralized. They're all separate. And if we could put them all in one place in one standard format. Um, and that was one of the concepts, like you could just push the raw data to it and the system is going to help figure it out. Uh, but I, I was just really excited about the future of us having our own data and it being sort of like in my control and then me being able to adjust access permission control, right? Like if I wanted to leave Facebook, I could just, you know, turn off their ability to write to my pod and I could just have it and leave Facebook and I have all my data there and that'd be so cool. That is really cool. Yeah. I mean, that scenario that you described, all of the disparate data sources and how none of it really talks to each other. None of it even makes sense. Even if you were just to compare it side by side, it looks completely different. That's where we're trying to play, right? Is that interoperability between all of these different platforms and being that translation layer so that everything means the same thing and that you can have the ability to merge in you know those different pods and do what you're talking about so we would hopefully be playing a big role in that going forward but that's really neat yeah that's why i was so excited to talk about them like the creator of the internet is creating essentially a second internet these new standards all this new plumbing and piping and technology it's called interrupt.com it's like okay. innovation and disruption together interrupt. And I was just blown away by, by what they're doing. You know, I kind of just sit there in awe and you're like, yes. And you take notes, <laughs> like, tell me more, tell me more. Yeah. But, but I had, um, it was a recent one. So I did, uh, like the pre interview preps, you know, I do them like a week before, so I can get to know you and think of thought like questions and stuff I have for you. And, uh, I just couldn't help, but connect these two. I was like, IMO should definitely like build something 
as this, or, or just at least be watching for the transition for people to start implementing this technology, even if it's not going to happen for a little bit, because you are in the most beautiful position to build something that's very useful Absolutely. Uh, for these data sources being coming together. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting. I mean, there's a lot of big, you know, open source organizations in healthcare that are trying to do this. There's regulatory type functions that are trying to solve these problems. It's like, but there isn't just one group that's banding together that's saying, hey, everybody, this is the right way to do it. And let's let's figure this out together. And so we're trying to to play a role in a number of those different camps right now. But yeah, I mean, this sounds like it's another one that that we should be looking into as well. Yeah, it's to me, when I see it with my limited experience, like I've never built a healthcare piece of technology, but there's two problems. The first problem is, and I think we're trying to solve, or at least from the conversations I've had, everyone's trying to solve both problems at the same time. Like here's yeah. a new standard. I had a similar experience in real estate where there was this thing called RETS, real estate transaction standard, but there mm -hmm. was 20 versions of RETS. And so then you had to create these mapping systems to <laughs> map yeah. the missed standards. I'm like, what's the, this is chaos. So when I was talking, I was with a couple of medical people, I was kind of understanding that maybe that's the way it is over there. And uh, if we could, so the two things that I see need to happen, and please correct me because I, I don't know a whole lot about this. The first part is I want my data. Just give, just push the raw. You don't need to build any complex APIs. You don't need to be doing any insights. Just push me my raw, a, a, a mirrored copy of the database tables where my data is. Just push yep. me a raw copy so I have access to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the problem is is how many disparate data sources that all of your raw data is in, right? And so, even your primary care doc. Like you said, I mean, there's no access to your dental data or even when you went to the hospital, right? What what happened, what transpired at the hospital, unless you explicitly push it over. And by the way, that comes over through a fax, right? It's not even something <laughs> that the system picks up. So, you know, it's like it's either an OCR that gets put up against the fax PDF that comes through or someone who's probably the receptionist is trying to read it and type it into the system for the provider to see when, I mean, it's, um, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of room for improvement in a lot of these processes. Yeah. I was at a medical office. I was hanging out with the staff and they literally took faxes that came in and then scanned them into OCR technology so that yeah. they could extract the data. And I'm like, this seems backwards to me. <laughs> it seems like a waste of paper. <laughs> I know, but you know what? That's more reliable than a lot of the interoperability APIs that have been created between these EHRs because each EHR has implemented their interoperability API differently than the other one. So, you know, having them talk to each other is, is a challenge. So at what point in the loop do they come to you? So does the EHR company come to you and say, hey, we need help with this translation or is that your customer? No. So our customers are typically the hospitals, the doctor's offices, but we need to work with the EHR so that we're integrated into the workflow. So I mentioned at the point of care, you know, we are really basically the standard in, in all of healthcare for that terminology. Then they'll come to us when all of their data is aggregated in a data warehouse because it's coming through all these different disparate data sources and say, this is a mess. 
you know, we need your help to clean this up and make sense of what this data means and if it's even specific enough. Did we lose data when that data came over? Help us understand that or help us clean when there's duplicate records. And so that's that's our that's typically when we get engaged also is at the beginning and then sort of at the end when it's in a data warehouse. Got it. Nice. Okay, I have a better understanding now. I'm getting it. I'm, yeah. I'm not the smartest, but I'm persistent, my friend. It, you know, it's <laughs> complex. It's really complex, you know, and I mean, there's so much more complexity to it, but at a high level, that's that's kind of how we play. I want to talk a little bit about leadership, success, things of that nature. Is that cool? Uh, absolutely. Okay. So what has made you successful in your career? Mm, I would say forming relationships. And I would argue that that is probably the success that I see of some of the most successful people on on my team, you know, whether they directly report to me or or under them, you know, the relationships that you create, especially if you're kind of crossing into another department, another group, um, also outside of the company networking, that's that's really been a key to my success. How do you do that well? I think, so for me, it's had to be targeted, right? So target it to a specific objective that you're trying to accomplish and really rally a cross-functional group of people behind it. And I would say even too, you know, externally finding people who are like-minded and and actually not like-minded and learn from them. You know, I, I think that's what a lot of my external relationships have been, have been key learnings about how other people are leading their organizations, where they've done well and where they haven't done well. And internally, it's about that collaboration, bringing people together to solve a common problem. And yeah, like I said, I mean, I think the most successful people know how to do that really well. And Let's let's do a hypothetical question for you, like a fun one. Okay. Um, let's say you're driving down the road and up next to you pulls Elon Musk and his Tesla. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> he rolls his window down and with his South African accent, he yeah. says, Hey, I want to show you the the newest Tesla, the the roadster, the one that no one's really seen yet. It's really exciting. Mm -hmm. It's supposed mm -hmm. to hover. I hope it hovers. So you go back, you go back to his factory and he's got a time machine there, right? And because he he didn't want to tell you the time machine because then you would have told all your friends on the phone that you're going to see his time right. machine, right? So he right. was very he's very he's a smart guy. So uh, you get you go on this time machine, but you go back to yourself at uh, your first internship and you get to give yourself one piece of advice for mm. your career. What would that be? Don't take things so seriously. Yeah, and I you know I think you you hear a lot about this you know, with women in, in science, women in leadership roles, you know, the, the imposter syndrome, the, you know, not feeling like they're good enough. And, you know, I wouldn't say that it's ever been that extreme for me, but I think I've taken things a lot more seriously than I needed to. And, you know, just take a step back and have fun. What you're going to be going through is a lot of fun. Enjoy yourself. I would say it's probably what I would tell myself. I tell myself that a lot too. And then I go back to just pushing really hard. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> it's like, okay, let's get back to business already. Yeah, yeah. I go in these cycles where I'm like, when I get 
when I am burning out or I'm getting too stressed out, you know, going at it too hard, I'm like, all right, just remember that I'm constantly looking back. And if I were to look back at myself, I'd be like, relax, chill out. Everything's going to be okay. And then, you know, you just, you push. I have a question about imposter syndrome for you though. Yeah. I have been trying to understand this one for a long time. So for about two years, I was of the thought process that I don't understand this imposter syndrome. It sounds silly. And uh, I, because the word imposter means to like, it's like got uh, roots in evil. Like I'm here to do something evil. I'm going to pretend to be someone else to do something evil. So I was like, all right, well, I don't understand that part of it, but let me try to understand it more. And then I had a breakthrough a couple of weeks ago when somebody connected the fact that like imposter syndrome is just self-doubt. It's just like a fan. It's like the generation just relabeled it because if you look at all the attributes of imposter syndrome, it's just it's self-doubt. It's self-doubt. It's self-doubt. It is the the feeling that you are in a position that you are not equipped to handle. And, you know, it's it's very much, yeah, it's it's that feeling of I'm not good enough and and there's someone else that can do this better. Someone more experienced who can do this better. And, you know, I would say I've heard in a lot of, you know, mentoring sessions with women whether it's at IMO or, or outside, I hear that a lot. Like I'm not experienced enough to feel like I can take on this manager role, or I, I need a little bit more time before you promote me because I'm just not ready for it. And the reality is, is we, we wouldn't be having these conversations if I didn't think you were ready for it, you know? And so it, that's really what it is at its root is, is that self-doubt. Do you ever used to say, talks for mentoring women, what's the type of advice? Uh, you said you listen to the podcast. I'm sure we have a lot of other women that listen to the podcast. We get the feedback to have on women. So when I'm here talking with you, I've got to ask, like, do you have any advice that you would give uh, women who are coming up in their career right now? Yeah. I mean, I would just say, listen, I mean, what you're feeling are real feelings. I mean, you shouldn't deny the fact that you're feeling a certain way. But the reality is, is you're capable of, of a lot and that you should give yourself some credit and some space and some time to, to try something new and, and see what happens. I mean, what is the worst that can happen? That's typically where my head goes is, what is the worst that could happen? It's real. And the worst isn't that bad. You know, so would you rather regret it later that you didn't take something on or that you didn't make a move that that could potentially change your life, your career, or, you know, just sit back and stay comfortable. So I'd say go for it. Just go for it. You can do it. But there's some individual contributors that are so good at what they do. And there's always a tendency to try to promote some of those strong individual contributors, and they end up not being the best managers. And so, you know, I think it's important to also temper that advice with the right type of person. Yes, that's super important because uh, I don't know if there's any other way around it, but you make the mistake a few times and then you learn what that type of person looks like and then you just stop making that mistake in the future. <laughs> yes, 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 exactly. exactly. Yeah, there's some, some of these lessons, there's no advice, there's nothing you can say, you just have to kind of walk through it. Yeah, and by the way, I should mention that it's not just women that I hear about the self-doubt from. I've, I've heard it a lot from, from men too. I mean, it is, it's a real rampant, 
rampant anxiety that people feel. And, and, you know, I think it sucks. You know, it's like, we've got to try to get out of that headspace as much as we can. Oh, I've, I've heard equally. I I've never like thought that like women talk about it more. I, yeah. I, I hear it in tech is where I hear it. I hear it in tech. Yes. That makes sense. And it's almost like you need a few successes to, to, to combat it. You know, it's like, okay, all right, I can do this. I am, I am cut out for this. And it just takes a few of those and then they're typically on the right path. I want to, I want to go a little bit deeper if we can, and we can, like I said, we can talk with the team, we can edit it out, but I don't know. I just kind of like feel it sometimes. Right. Uh, Have you ever been in a position where maybe you feel like your, your gender held you back or somebody was being sexist to some degree? Has you, have you ever had like firsthand experience with this? I have a number of times. Um, so in school, I would say, I mean, at the beginning, you know, being one of two women in my class, in my graduating class in computer science, I mean, was already just, you know, it was very clear the disparity, but you know, early on found a really good support system. And I felt like that that worked well. But there was one time where I went into a lecture and it was it was in, it was in grad school where the professor called me out in a uh, an auditorium of 300 people, pointed at me and asked if I was in the wrong room. Wow. Yeah. And my assumption is none other than that I'm the only female or, you know, one of a handful of females in the room. So that stuck with me. You know, I I still, I still talk about it. Um, By the end of that class, he had asked me to become a teaching assistant because I was, you know, one of the, the highest ranked students in the class. But after that, I would say in work, you know, I mean, there were a number of kind of sexist comments that had come out that, I'm happy I stood up to and and said something about and I and I would say you know it's not even just you know gender but we're talking a lot about diversity equity inclusion and IMO too you know if someone's uncomfortable with a comment that someone makes the best thing you can do is have a conversation with that person because you were directly impacted by it and that person will never forget that conversation that you have with them. And so, you know, I, I feel like that's always been my tact is anytime some comment was made to me or about someone else where I've been there, I've always been very open about how I feel and, and it's, it's worked really well. And I think as leaders, we have to promote that within our teams too. And, you know, I think one of the instincts as managers too is when you hear someone on your team has said something that's inappropriate is to go talk to them and teach them but the reality is or coach them that the person who took offense talking to that person is the most impactful possible way to approach that situation so yeah yes uh, hold on a second you just dropped some knowledge here okay you're saying that it's if if i'm a if i'm a manager of a team right and uh, person A said something to person B, person B didn't like it and came to me, right? Yeah. Rather than me going and, and sort of interacting with person A, I should coach person B for, to go coach them on how to go approach person A and have this sort of discussion. Yes, yes. Because mm. imagine if you were person A and your manager is the one who tells you how this other person felt. 
And you probably can't disclose who this other person was or what the scenario was. You weren't there. You don't know exactly what happened. It ends up becoming a he said, she said conversation. And so the most impactful thing to do is to hear the emotional impact of what that you know statement had on person B. Right. Absolutely. And I'll even take it a step farther because the way I would feel if a third party came to me, I would be upset what I can't yeah. say stuff now. It wouldn't even be about what I said. It would just be about like my ability to communicate. Well, I'm not communicating right or oh, what they're not going to even approach me or talk to me about this. I can't even you're being ambiguous as to who it was and when it was. How am I supposed totally. to change my behavior? How can or, I change or, my behavior? I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Right. I didn't say yeah. it like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The walls go up. Right. <laughs> <laughs> totally, totally. And that's, you know, that's back to the radical candor, right? Is feeling safe, feeling like you're in an environment where you can trust that the person you're giving feedback to isn't going to retaliate, isn't going to freak out. But should that person retaliate, then we've got a very serious, you know, performance problem that the manager needs to deal with. But yeah, I mean, those are the types of cultures that that's the type of culture we're trying to promote. I like it. We're making some progress here today. Uh, I wasn't expecting all, this stuff is not was not in the prep or the notes or anything. <laughs> but I think it's good conversation to have. Yeah, no, it is. It's important. And it's so important right now. I mean, with just the way the country is and the way conversations are going. And you heard about, you know, Basecamp, right? Where they oh, yeah. released, we're not talking about anything political, anything you know, sensitive anymore. And people are leaving because the reality is, is those conversations are happening and we just need to start dealing with them because if we ignore them, you know, it just continues to compound the problem even more. Oh, exactly. I know. This is recent too. This is just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I was blown away. Under the rug, right? Yeah. They said you cannot have these conversations like in our software. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. Um, yeah. so I think, I think if I saw that, like, I like to flip things around on myself. Like, let's say my company was bigger. I have a small company. We have less than 15 people, but okay. if I did see this going on, if I saw there was like a political channel and there was like extended amounts of conversation that people were having debates in there, I would address it differently. I wouldn't ban a, a topic of conversation on the work slack. What I would do is I'd say, let's take these top two or three ideas that we're all talking about. And let's have like, let's all get together like an offsite or something, maybe get an expert that's like has some, I'm just making this up off the top of my head. Let's get an expert that has way deeper knowledge than we do, bring them into our offsite and let's just discuss these with an open mind and get them out there. Yeah. Someone who's unbiased, right? Yeah. You can come in and educate. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there, there may be some things that are inappropriate too. And I think as leaders, we just have to kind of make that judgment call. But I think you know, stopping it or trying to sweep it under the rug or yeah, just not trying to empower people to educate and have some of those important conversations is the wrong approach. Yeah. Right now. You know, listeners reach out to me all the time through LinkedIn and they all share what's been helpful. And, and so I'm always trying to just figure out like how we can be serve the audience better. That's the job here. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one of the other things that we did, if it's useful, is we set up a diversity, um, equity and inclusion steering committee that's really focused. And it's not all executives. It's actually a lot of a grounds up kind of a team who are focused on looking at some of the culture with an IMO and 
making some of those calls, right? And that scenario that we went through, right, person A, person B, that was a scenario that was discussed in the steering committee. You know, what is IMO's take on how we should approach something like that? And it was very much the manager should not be involved in this. This is something that is culturally aligned with our open feedback, you know, direct kind of impact conversations that we need to have with people. And so having that steering committee is also something that was was important for us to make this progress. 100%. This has been a fascinating conversation. I want to do a call to action wrap up if any of the potential describe who the customer is, why they would buy and then how to find out more about your company. Yeah, so our customers are the providers, really anyone in healthcare who is looking to solve data quality challenges. And if that is something that you're experiencing and you want more information, then you know, reach out to me on LinkedIn or you can go to www.imohealth.com and learn a little bit more about us. We have some real cool informational videos on our website and we have a ton of open positions too. So, you know, please check us out. And um, if you're interested in any open roles, reach out to me. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.